Radio.ie hosts the Irish History Show podcast because history matters. Radio turns 100 years young this year. Radio's history is powered by Radio Archives. For radio archiving solutions from people passionate about radio, visit radio.ie. Welcome to the Irish History Show. My name is Cahill Brennan and as always I'm joined by my co-presenter John Dorney from theirishstory.com. Please check out our friends at radio.ie for all your radio archiving solutions. You can find this episode and all our previous episodes on our website irishhistoryshow.ie. You can follow us on Twitter at irishhistorypod or on Facebook facebook.com forward slash the Irish History Show. If you get a chance, please rate and review the show on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help us and if you hear an episode you like, please share it on your social media. We are really grateful for all the support we receive from you, the listeners. John has set up a Patreon for the Irish Story and the Irish History Show and if you would consider supporting the show, there's a link in the show notes. Thank you and we really do appreciate it. On this episode of the show, John was joined by Dr. Terry Dunn to discuss land disputes and agrarian radicalism in Ireland during the revolutionary period. Dr. Terry Dunn is a sociologist and historian and was Leash County Historian in Residence in 2021 and 2022. He is the host of the Peelers and Sheep podcast and you can find that on peelersandsheep.ie. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Show. It's me, John Dorney. Unfortunately, Carl Brennan, my co-host, is not with me today. But we have a very interesting guest. We're going to be speaking with Terry Dunn. Terry is the host of the Peelier and Sheep podcast, and he is also the Leash Historian in Residence. So thanks for joining us, Terry. Thanks for having me. I'm often listening to older episodes of the show, so it's great to be on it. I was listening to your episode on the Irish Brigade in the Spanish Civil War the other day. Very interesting stuff. Yeah, well, thanks for that. We're going to be talking today with Terry about agrarianism and particularly the phenomenon of cattle driving in the Irish Revolutionary period. So before we get into it, Terry, how did you get into this topic? I would have been interested in what came after it in terms of the the divided land and the land commission and redistribution by the land commission, because it was always something I heard about growing up. I'm originally from South Kildare and there wouldn't have been too much of that down in South Kildare. But um, my father would have remembered the estate or the domain of Lord Kildare being divided in the, I think it was the early 1960s, people from West Clare being brought down to new farms there. And so it was just something I'd heard about. And now I live in East Clare myself and the phenomenon of divided land and land redistribution by the Land Commission, it's very apparent to see on the landscape. Do you know, around me, there'd be lots of modern farmhouses built beside what would have been, say, the wall garden of the big house or built beside what would have been the formal entrance and the impressive gates of the big house. So it's really kind of apparent on the landscape. So that's one kind of aspect of it how it's there within social memory. But another aspect, I think, it's kind of a sociological problem because the way things are supposed to work is big capital eats little capital. Because of economies of scale and because of the cost of production, production is supposed to be conducted on a grand scale. There's what is known as the centralization of capital. So if we think about, let's say, a car or a computer, it's something that's manufactured by a giant multinational corporation. And there's not really much room in those forms of production for small businesses. That doesn't seem to apply to farming in the same way, or at least certain branches of farming. So that's kind of a sociological problem as to as to why that should be so. So that's one dimension of it. I think another dimension of it is that outside the land war and the planet campaign, when agrarian social conflict is closely tied up with the history of Irish nationalism, I think the extent of agrarian social conflict is overlooked in the conventional narrative of Irish history, especially when you get to the revolutionary period. I was just reading the other day 
about a home rule demonstration in Leash around the time of the third home rule crisis. So it would have been 1912, 1913. And that demonstration took place under two banners, home rule and the land for the people. And I think the land for the people has often been overshadowed a little by home rule or the republic. Maybe it's time to put the land for the people a bit more into the frame. Sure. And I mean, those of us who study the period will know that the land question can't be avoided at any point. But going back to the early 20th century, I suppose the picture people have in their minds of the land question is there was landlords in Ireland and they owned all the land and everyone was tenants. And then you had the land acts and then everybody owned their land. You know, this is a very vulgar oversimplification, but I think that's the picture lots of people have in their minds. You know, could you give us a sketch of what was actually like on the land in around 1910, you know, just before the Irish Revolutionary Period? By 1910, you would have had, I mean, the Major Land Act transferring formal ownership of property from landlords to tenants was the Wyndham Land Act. So you would have had the Wyndham Land Act by then and maybe two thirds of tenants had started to purchase out their holdings. But that still leaves a lot of people who were still tenants, particularly concentrated in certain parts of the country, uh, particularly in the in the Midlands and North Leinster. So when you get to the 1920s, you would still have had a little under half the land in Leash or Offaly had yet been purchased by the Land Acts. So that's one dimension of it. But another is, it wasn't just a matter of landlords and tenants. It was also a matter of a profoundly unequal distribution of farmland. So like looking at a case at the moment in the western part of Leash in 1920, where there's a cattle driving in 1920, we'll go into the actual specifics of cattle driving in a while. But a group of people were driving the cattle off the neighbouring farm. And what the people, well, one of the guys driving the cattle said to the owner of the cattle was, you have 500 acres, I have five acres. Between us, referring to his colleagues that he was driving the cattle with, between us, we don't have enough earth to saw the lark, like meaning to bury a small bird. And if you look at the statistics, and we've got good statistics from around 1911, 1915 onwards, there is an awful lot of small farms. So like the bulk of the farmland might have been on larger farms, but there was a large number of farmers with very small farms. Now, this would have been more pronounced in the likes of Galway, Roscommon, Mayo, but even in County Lake Leash, about half the farms would have been under 30 acres, which is borderline economically unviable in the, the standards that the uh, British and later Irish governments come up with, which is a viable farm has to be about 20 acres or 22 acres or 30 acres or 32 acres. Yeah. Whereas there were farms that were 5, 10, 15 acres. Very small and not really able to afford people much of a living. And we've got to bear in mind, across a lot of the country, 100 years ago, agriculture was really the only industry. So it's not like you could have your small farm and a job in a nearby factory because there were no nearby factories. That's one dimension of it. And we got to remember that as well as these small farmers who were a, a discontented element in rural Ireland, there was also a lot of wage workers in Irish agriculture, particularly in the south and east, where you have more dairying and tillage and where you have larger farms. Sure. Now, you know, this idea of moral economy, you know, the idea of people's idea of the way things should be, you know, in yeah. the 19th century, you have a very strong, as you've mentioned already, uh, agitation against landlords and the, the idea that the landlords stole the land and so on historically. But also in the 20th century, what I've just come across is you have the figure of the rancher or the big farmer who is not a landlord in the historical sense, but he's somebody who's using the land not for tenants or not for farming, but for to graze his, his cattle. And a lot of people seem to see this as a very selfish way to use the land at that time, didn't they? Yeah, there were certain forms of land uses and land ownership that were seen as illegitimate, which can be fitted into that moral economy frame. And a lot of it relates back to that inequality in the size of farms and inequality in land ownership. And so if you had situations where, say, someone had a large home farm in one area and a non-residential farm somewhere else, that might be seen as illegitimate because they had 500 acres or 1,000 acres, which was so much larger than, their, than what their neighbours would have. Also, what you had a lot with these, what people call the ranchers or the graziers, was what was known as the 11th month system, that landlords 
particularly like this, and there would have been surviving landlords after, even after tenant purchase, because they landlords would have had a lot of land in their own hands, which is what is known as untenanted land. Some of this untenanted land they would have been farming themselves. Some of it they would have actually been letting out because you don't qualify as a inverted commas tenant unless you're renting the land for more than 11 months. So landlords would like to let land out to these 11-month men because they didn't have the same legislative protections as everyone else. So there was a big market for these 11-month lettings, and this was seen as land that was being monopolized by a wealthy elite. And also, it would have been seen as land which had been made available by clearances at the time of the famine. Now, whether that was necessarily true or not, well, probably was true. It doesn't have to necessarily be at, at the time of the famine. But this is the sort of thing that people would hearken back to. Then in terms of the a lot of the rhetoric of nationalists, but not just nationalists, the grazier and the rancher were seen as illegitimate in terms of this being a very much a kind of low input form of farming wasn't necessary to employ a lot of people to do it, and it wasn't necessary to make a lot of fixed capital investments. So there wasn't more of an economic spin-off for the wider society. Now, that's how its opponents would have characterized it, yeah? So like an 11 months man could have just rented a big tract of land from a landlord, stocked it with animals, got a herd in to take care of the animals. The herd would have kind of had a share in some of the animals as well, or been able to put his animals in, not had to employ anyone more than that, and not had to have invested in the land. Yeah, they just bought the stock at one part of the year and sold it on at a later part of the year. It would have been seen as, as a part of economic underdevelopment on the one hand, and it would have been seen as immoral on the other hand, because you have a small number of people with a large amount of the resources in the society. Yeah, sure. Not you mentioned the famine there and the memories of the famine, and this is something you see all the time in this period, whether it's the famine or whether it's the land war and so on. But people have these grudges going back from that, where they say and they believe that their ancestors have been unjustly evicted and the people who are occupying the land now in some way benefited from this. And that's part of that's part of it too, isn't it? It's part of unrest and discontent on the land. Oh yeah, absolutely. I was actually, in some of the cases I've been researching, I've been taken aback by how far they go back in that you can have an incident in 1920 and it go back to maybe 1870 and people claiming a right to land on the basis that maybe their family had been evicted from that land in the 1870s and not necessarily even be living in the area now. Like there's one case I was looking at, the guy was working for Guinnesses in Dublin, but he was like, you know, I have a claim on this land because it, were, it was originally in my family's possession, going back to when a landlord evicted us from there, even before the land war. Like this didn't just come up in 1920. It had previously came up in the 1910s or previously in the 1890s. Wasn't necessarily anything to do with the people who were occupying the land in 1920, but other people felt that they had a claim on it. And it goes back to, we can relate it back to what you're saying about moral economy, and it goes back to the idea that the tenant was, I was, I'm about to say the rightful owner of the soil, not the landlord, but that's probably not the correct way of putting it. But people certainly had the concept that they had an ownership over their tenancies um, once you go back into the 19th century. Yeah, the rightful uh, use of the land might be maybe the way to put it. Yeah, use, uh, use rights would probably be a better way of, uh, of putting it rather than, like, say, the modern conception of private property, yes. Now, you know, when we're talking about this period, the Irish Revolution, the standard chronology, you know, is very straightforward now. It's, so you have the Home Rule Crisis, you have Easter Rising, you have the 1918 election and the first all, then you have the War of Independence, and then finally treaty and the civil war but if we're talking about the chronology of if you like the land war as some people call it that in this period it kind of starts in around 1918 if i'm not mistaken is that right big upswell of kind of agrarian agitation on the land it does yes though we could switch it around altogether and we could say that the ranch war which was more around 1908 1910 and before the home rule crisis was a kind of presaged a lot of the agrarian unrest that we see during the irish revolution so maybe we could date the irish revolution from the time of the ranch war i don't know but to go into the period that we kind of conventionally know of now as the irish revolution now though that said other people dated back to 1879 as well 
you basically 1918, 1920, and again, 1922, there are kind of the big years for agrarian um, agitation. Yeah. 1918, 1920, and then kind of from the truce into the Civil War. And in 1918, it's a little different in the because of food price inflation during the First World War, as a result of the First World War, and also bad harvests from around about 1916 onwards in adverse weather condition, you have a real food supply crisis. I mean, this is a factor across lots of the states involved in the um, First World War and also uh, neutral states that are supplying the the belligerents with with food. You have this food supply crisis and you have collective action around that. Like the slogan in the Russian Revolution is peace, bread and land. You got bread in there because of the food supply crisis or why you have what's known as the potato revolt in Amsterdam because people were trying to stop potatoes being exported from the Netherlands to Germany and Britain because they couldn't afford their normal standard of living and their normal foodstuffs to be used to. Part of the Irish manifestation of this is the protests around the occupancy of land by these ranchers, the 11 months men, larger farmers, landlords who still have land, becomes focused around the issue of providing food to the Irish people, the memory of Black 47, and needing to plough up the grassland to produce basic foodstuffs to assure the local population's food security rather than beef for export. So that's why it's known as the uh, tillage movement. In this period, late 1917, early 1918, you have people doing things like bringing ploughs onto uh, onto farms and ploughing the land. So they'll symbolically be able to start growing crops on them. At the same time, you have the British government from 1917 onwards, introducing a measure of compulsory tillage. Farmers of above a certain acreage had to till a certain amount of land. And because of that, you have more demand for labour. And that's where you start seeing the agricultural labourers movement really develop. And from around March 1917 onwards, you start seeing a lot of like wage demands and trade union organising. And I should say that this happens like in an in an urban context as well, because both like to Dublin or Galway, but also in smaller towns, people are demanding allotments and organizing for their rights as allotment holders because of this situation where the where the cost of food is increasing all the time and have been increasing since nineteen fourteen. I guess if it had just been a case of the first world war, you know, you would have expected it to end after the war ended. Uh, but that's not the case, is it? I mean, it pretty much escalated in the first two years afterwards, when, of course, you also have the first doll being set up and you have the RSC being boycotted and so on. Absolutely, John. Yeah. At that particular moment, there's uh, this particular um, aspect in 1918 as to why it's known as the tillage movement. What's different in 1918 as well is that Sinn Féin and the volunteers support the agrarian protests in 1918. By the time you come to 1920, they've started to step back from it. And if you look in decades previously, anywhere, how any kind of distant strand within the home rule bloc started establishing any kind of profile for themselves, whether it's like the United Irish League or is it the William O'Brien as all, the All for Irelanders down in Munster, it's through supporting agrarian protest or through supporting public housing for labourers and some of the kind of more limited and conservative rural trade unionism they had prior to 1917. I believe that's kind of the path that Sinn Féin are going down early in 1918, but they step back from this and they step back from it, I think, for a couple of reasons. One is you have the conscription crisis in the spring of 1918, and that gives them like a much better issue to mobilise around and to win support around. And it's much more clear cut, the Irish nation versus the British government, whereas the agrarian social conflict is more complicated because you can have nationalists on both sides. And also there is intervention in February 1918 from the bishops against this growing agrarian movement. So things quieten down a bit then, but they resume in 1920 and they resume on a grand scale in 1920 particularly on the East Connacht Plain and East Galway and Roscommon, South Mayo. You've got a situation, as you know, that the RIC have evacuated from a lot of the country. And there's, a, I suppose, an air of expectation. Yeah, there's cattle driving on a grand scale in the spring of 1920. 
I probably should explain exactly what is involved in a cattle drive. So uh, cattle driving was a tactic that evolved during the ranch war. I think it would have started in 1907, 1908. I'm not 100% sure that uh, Lawrence Ginnell, who was a Home Rule MP, I'm one of the few people who are Home Rule MPs that went over to Sinn Féin, kind of pioneered the tactic. But basically, it simply means removing animals usually cattle, as the name suggests, but also sheep, from a disputed piece of property or a piece of property that people were putting in a claim for that should be redistributed or so on and so forth. It's kind of most kind of classical and kind of ritualized form. Like there'd be a band, the band would march around a place, people would collect up the cattle and they wouldn't just send the cattle anywhere. They'd remove them to the yard or maybe even to the front lawn of the owner and saying, here, we're returning your property to you, but that piece of land over there, it's not going to be yours anymore yet because earlier from the incident in uh, Leash, in, 19, in Western Leash in 1920, you have 500 acres and here's me with only five. So here's your cattle back. And, you know, maybe it's time to share some of these resources a little bit better. Now, that's the most kind of stylized or ritualized form. The impression one gets in the newspapers of reporting on the East Connacht Plain in the spring of 1920 was just uh, any kind of roadway, hill, wherever you'd see there'd be cattle wandering here, there, left, right and centre because people were driving cattle all over the place. That uh, poses a problem for the British state and it poses a problem for the kind of Republican counter-state as well. Absolutely. So, yeah, you mentioned the Republican counter-state and famously what I think of in this context is the dull courts and the land courts, the Republican land courts. So, it's a tricky one, as you say, for Sinn Féin and for the Republican movement, because it's a kind of a cross-class organization. There's people there who are landless. There are people there who are quite prosperous. So how do they deal with this at the time? They deal with it by setting up a system of arbitration courts or doll courts or land courts, as they're known. And basically, what these do is they try and put issue on the long finger. Now, there is a wonderful witness statement in the Bureau of Military History by Kevin O'Shiel, who was really one of the central figures involved in the Dáil Court. He presided at courts uh, across the West and the Midlands. And he basically admits in that that any time he awarded in favour of what were known as congests, which is these, these small farmers, these farmers maybe with five acres or 15 acres, it didn't really make any difference because they didn't have the funds with which to purchase or rent the land that they were putting in claims on, yeah? He was more selling people a promise that something would happen at a future date and keeping them quiet for the immediate present. Like, he credits, and other Republicans credit him with the, the dog court phenomenon in general, with preventing this new land war, as he would have put it. But I'm more inclined to think that this was a matter of the seasonality of this type of land protest. It usually took place in the spring, early summer, because that's the start of the farming calendar and that's when you're you know starting to plant or put animals out into the fields or whatnot so the protests over land are going to be in like march april they're not going to be in october november so much they run their course in the spring of 1920 and then they resume again in subsequent years maybe not so much in the spring of 1921 but certainly once you get into the, the time of the troops and uh, the Civil War. And that said, like if you dive a little deeper into it, you find that people are complaining to the new free state government or to the British government when it sets up a compensation system for Southern loyalists. People are complaining that they'd lost to those bodies, that they'd lost control of their lands in 1920 and hadn't got them back in 1923. And that's a, a sort of an unexplored story, I think, to some extent. So I think there was a certain amount of land that was taken into some kind of popular occupation in 1920 and, and, and remained that way for subsequent years. Terry, I mean, one impression that I have of agrarian agitation in, in the 20 to 21 period is at a certain point with the British crackdown on the separatist movement, black and tans and auxiliaries and martial law declared in part of the country, it just gets a bit too dangerous, you know, for a period for agrarian agitation to go ahead? I'm not 100% sure. In certain respects, yes. You see this mass mobilization in the spring of 1920, which you don't see in the spring of 1921. And the reasonable inference there is that the situation in the spring of 1921 
is so much more violent when there is more of a crown forces mobilization it is into places where as well as into places where there's obviously where there's been a lot of ira activity it is also into places where there's been a lot of cattle driving because the british authorities the same as all other actors in the period they're remembering the 19th century so they're thinking yeah ireland trouble what to be watching out for oh yeah land protests make sure to send some guys over to some troops or towns over to where the land protests are happening as i was saying just to your last question if you look at the likes of the irish grants committee which is the body that was set up by the british government to compensate southern loyalists for when they had suffered property damage or whatever during the course of the revolution or some of the compensation cases that are in the local courts in the free state in like you know 1924 or thereabouts or some of say people's correspondence with free state authorities in 1922-23 although as you come into 1921 you're not seeing a situation where people are gathering together openly behind the local band and maybe driving cattle from what they would call a ranch. I would say you would see a lot more kind of like low level clandestine activity or you would see you'd still see a situation where people had lost control of their lands because of the mobilization in 1920. You're right into saying that because of the level of state violence, you're not seeing a big mobilization in the spirit of 1921. But I strongly suspect and I would have some evidence to support this, you're seeing a lot of things that are going on more quietly and less overt. Sure. Now, one slight beef I have with the general history at the moment is talking about the period between July 1921 and July 1922 as the truce. And for me, this is two different periods. You know, you've got the truce, which is like an armed peace, if you like, in the second half of 1921. And then the post-treaty period, which is quite different because the British state starts to leave. But that's for another day, maybe. But I mean, my question, I guess, is what does changing circumstances of late 1921 and early 1922, how does it play in to unrest on the land in Ireland? Well, it resumes again in the spring of 1922. And my sense of it is it resumes across a wider geographic area, whereas the movement in 1920, like not exclusively so, but very concentrated in the West, Galway, Mayo, Wisconsin. It's more kind of diffuse and across more counties in the spring of 1922, maybe not as intense, but more spread out. And it's difficult to get a grasp on exactly what does be happening. Contrast it with the other subaltern agrarian movement, which is going on at the same time among the rural working class among rural wage labourers, and which is more concentrated in Leinster and Munster to draw broad strokes. Yeah, where there's, to say, there's larger farms, more daring and more tillage that employs more people. So if you're looking at that movement, you've got formal organisation. You've got people, by and large, being members of the Irish Transport and General Workers Union. That organisation has a newspaper, The Voice of Labour. It used to change its name a lot because it was banned. Sometimes it's called The Voice of Labour. Sometimes it's called The Watchword of Labour. So you can read that newspaper to get a sense of what the participants in the movement are up to. Because they're a formal organisation, then they have like local leaders. The local leaders will be giving statements to the local press or writing letters to the local press. So you can see what the branch secretary of such and such a trade transport union branch is saying. Because it was a formal organisation, it also has some of its own records, which you can sometimes see. Some of them are in the, in the National Library in the William O'Brien papers. Different from the last William O'Brien, William O'Brien, the trade union leader, not William O'Brien, the offer Ireland League leader. Always confusing uh, that one, yeah. And then there's yeah, also yeah. another another William O'Brien who was a young Irelander way back as well. Yeah, 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 I was about to say. So you have all that like formal organisation producing publicity and records and so on and so forth, right? So you can, with that, you have an important source of documentation to get a grasp of what's going on, right? But then with the cattle drivers and with the agrarian protest, unless we're talking about periods when it's linked to the kind of mainstream of Irish nationalism, like where it's uh, linked in with the United Irish League, people aren't producing a record. They're not necessarily claiming in the local newspaper about what they're doing and why they're doing it. They're just going out and engaging in contentious collective action. And some of the time, what they're doing is highly illegal. So they're trying to keep it clandestine from the people who are keeping records, the people who are keeping records being various police forces, though 
that's more of a factor in the civil war. So it becomes quite difficult to know exactly what's going on. But certainly my sense of it is once you get to the spring of 1922, there's this kind of agrarian small farmer protest, protest for the redistribution of land across a wider scope of the country than was going on in 1920, though perhaps less intense, which is kind of what the Dahl courts were set up to prevent from happening, to head it off so it, it didn't expand into other parts of the country and was kind of just stuck where it had already taken off on the East Connacht Plain. I should say, though, we're talking about it spreading around the country. It's got to, got to bear in mind as well that agriculture is a strongly regionalised phenomenon, partly because it's bound up with the physical environment, with uh, soil types and rainfall and so on and so forth. I mean, the easiest way of, of explaining the different regions that you would have in the Irish Free State is you've got butter, barley and beef as being the main products of those regions. And mostly it's the kind of beef corridor that stretches from the west of Ireland over into North Leinster. Yeah, so from, say, Mayo Galway over to Meath, that is where you have these protests for the redistribution of land. But that said, in this time in the spring of 1922, it, it does seem to be more uh, more diffuse than that. It's interesting, though, like in that your geographical explanation might explain a lot. You know, what you come across is in some areas you've got rent strikes, which are very much old school. If you like, they're trying to get the landlord to sell up. You have what's known as land grabbing, pejoratively, in other areas. And you have the famous Soviets of 1922, which is basically normally rural workers occupying a creamery or something trying to stop wages being reduced. So uh, does the, you know does that tie into what you're saying there? Does it very much depend on the geographic conditions in a different area? Yeah, partly. I mean, that's kind of broad brush as well. I think we have to say that to get a grasp on what's going on, but it is a broad brush. But yeah, I mean, the creamery occupations in the summer of 1922, which uh, took place in the Cleves creameries where they're where in response to a fairly savage wage cut i think a lockout as well the workers took over the running of the creameries i mean that form of agri-processing is only going on in the, in the darien area so you're not going to get it so much in mayo other areas where you have the rent strikes and agitation of unpurchased tenants i think you found a lot of it in south ulster and i think it's also in north leinster a bit into the midlands as well there's a specific area area where there was still a lot of tenants had not bought out their holdings under the land acts yeah that's and, right i mean just just to interject a little bit there i mean i suspect there might be some sort of political subtext to that where you know on the kind of border region south ulster north leinster possibly you know landlords felt a little bit more confident maybe a political sense that they didn't sell up yet but i'm not sure about that that's just okay yeah, yeah that's that's interesting but we have to remember as well like there can be a there can be a very kind of populist reading on this the rural society was stratified in a lot of different ways and we've talked a bit about the cattle drivers I've mentioned a bit about the Irish Transport and General Workers Union, which was the main trade union organising farm workers. And farm work was the, the largest employment sector for male workers in what was about to become the Irish Free State. So we've talked about that. But a large social movement organisation in rural Ireland in the early 1920s, which is often overlooked and more overlooked than the, <laughs> the first two I've mentioned, is the Irish Farmers Union. And the Irish Farmers Union had, I think, in the region of 100,000 members, which makes it as big as and the Irish Transport and General Workers Union or the Irish Republican Army. It also had a political party, the Farmers Party, that stood in the uh, 1922 and 1923 elections. And interestingly, while it's the uh, inveterate enemy of organised labour and Whereas the cream reoccupations that we were talking about there a minute ago face more opposition from the Irish Farmers Union than they do from the actual owners of the creameries. And where the Irish Farmers Union is the kind of the vanguard of farmers who are employers in terms of either opposing or negotiating with the, uh, the, the transport union as it spreads out into rural Ireland. The Irish Farmers Union does support unpurchased tenants in their negotiations with landlords. So including guys who would have been very much the leaders of employers in industrial disputes. I'm thinking of specific um, individuals like uh, Frederick de Vere, who was the leader of the uh, Farmers Union in Kildare during the 1919 Meath and Kildare farm strike. He was also, you know, a couple of years later involved in supporting unpurchased tenants. Likewise, a fella by the name of Patrick Belton, 
who tried to set up a kind of more sort of populist breakaway from the Irish Farmers Union that was oriented towards the interests of unpurchased tenants and I think barley growers as well. He unsuccessfully stood for election in the Leash Offaly constituency in, I think, 1923. Patrick Belton, I'm sure you remember, John, because he later became an important figure in the Irish Christian Front, wasn't it? Supporting Franco during the Spanish Civil War, if, if I remember rightly. Do I have that right? Yep. Yep. Um, and supposedly he did away with some of the funds, or so they say anyway. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Like, I, it's important to remember that all these different sources of discontent in rural Ireland, they weren't all the same thing. So you have unpurchased tenants. That's one thing. You have these protests about for a redistribution of farmland, which is coming from small farmers much more than the landless. And you also have this farm labourers movement, which is mostly about wages, though people do also have the demand for housing and expanded cottage gardens because council houses had half acre and later acre plots attached to them in rural areas back then. And that demand for expanded cottage gardens relates to the kind of food supply crisis that I was talking about earlier. So it's different classes and different uh, different social strata involved in these different movements. I think it's important to stress. Absolutely. And just to jump in there a little bit, I mean, you know, by this stage, my impression is that the land for the people in the sense of and more land acts and buying out the remaining landlords is actually kind of a conservative demand. So as you said, the Farmers Union, which is quite a conservative body, supports that. But, you know, people going beyond that are looking, like you said, at different strata of rural society. Yeah, I mean, you could say it was conservative. I can't remember who this was, but... Um, Moderate might be a better word than conservative. Yeah, mo- or centrist, yeah. I yeah. can't remember exactly who this was, but like there was an agricultural commission in 23 that was setting the supervised agricultural policy for the new state. And definitely one of, of the representatives on that commission was advocating for a smallholding, inverted commas, peasantry as a conservative bulwark. There is totally another take on the land question coming from the far left of the Irish Revolution. And it's coming from two different directions. One is that there should be collective ownership of land. And this was Irish Labour Party and Trade Union Congress policy at this time and was proposed by rural branches. If I remember rightly, it was proposed by the South Kings County Workers' Council Yeah, at one of the Congress meetings that there should be collective ownership of farmland, which, well, they would argue would actually be the land for the people, because if (laughs) there's lots of people who don't have any land today, so how did the land for the people actually happen? That's one take on it. And the other take on it that, like, if you go back to James Connolly's few writings on agrarian matters, there's the expectation that these small farms will not be viable. They'll face competition from the giant ranches of Argentina and the United States and their owners will just have to sell up and desist from farming at some stage in the future anyways, which as we know didn't actually really happen quite that way. I mean, there's still small farms now, but certainly there were small farms as to what by 1920s, 1930s standards up until the 1970s, 1980s. But that's the actual kind of radical position during the Irish Revolution, whereas this kind of, yeah, the land for the people and redistributing farmland was more a kind of a kind of centrist position. Even the Irish Farmers Union would put up with at least some of it. And it generally represented the bigger farmers and even lots of former landlords. And indeed, like, well, maybe this will come out more as we talk about the 1923 Land Act. But the redistribution of land, the redistribution of farmland didn't start with Irish Free State and the 1923 Land Act. It was actually already being carried out to a lesser extent by the British state, both by the Congested Districts Board, which was set up to deal with the specific issues of uh, rural poverty in the west of Ireland, but also in the rest of the country as part of the tenant purchase. If the estates commissioners, which was the responsible government body, was buying out an entire estate to transfer it to the tenants, if there was any untenanted land there or domain land, they were authorised to divide that up into small holdings and for redistribution to local smallholders. And there was also an interesting dimension of the land question as before the 1923 Land Act, there was the Irish Land Soldiers and Sailors Act of 1919, which was also redistributing farmland on a much smaller scale to ex-soldiers. What the Free State does from 1923 onwards in terms of redistributing farmland, and it did redistribute a lot of farmland, like upwards of maybe 20% of farmland in the country, was already being done by the British government. Yeah, but the Free State expanded it greatly. Yeah, it's maybe not as radical. Maybe it's a kind of a centrist position at the time, certainly, yeah. How much of civil war violence, because obviously the period we're talking about, you know, most people would be aware the treaty is signed, but not everyone agrees on it, and there's eventually war between 
prone anti-treaty factions, but how much of civil war violence is really agrarian violence, in your opinion? I mean, I suppose it depends on how you define the civil war. But in terms of the actual fighting between the pro-treatyites and the anti-treatyites, I don't think it has much of a social dimension. In the run-up to the attack on the forecourts, in terms of policing areas and defending against popular mobilization. I think the anti-treatyites and the pro-treatyites were on the same page. Like they declared, I think they didn't they jointly declare martial law in uh, Kilkenny and the anti-treatyites declared martial law in West Mayo in response to agrarian protest. I mean, it, it does depend on how you define this civil war. So because if this civil war was just the combat between the National Army and the state forces and the anti-treaty IRA, then yes, I agree with you. Agrarianism doesn't have a lot to do with it because their social policies on either side are not very well developed. On the other hand, though, if you're to view the civil war as kind of a two-year period where state power is finally re-established under the banner of the free state, I think a lot of it is agrarian violence and not necessarily always about the IRA. Oh, yeah, absolutely, John. Yeah. I think if you call the free state counter-revolutionary, I think perhaps people take the wrong impression, yeah? That it, it's like it wants to roll the revolution back altogether. It's more that it wants to stop the revolution at a certain point and prevent anything going further than that. So I think 100% as the National Army retakes, or the National Army takes rather, control over the country, high on the list of the priorities is ejecting workers from the workplaces that they have occupied in North Munster and the, the Creamery situation, making it so that farmers can introduce savage wage cuts on farm workers in Waterford, the Kilkenny Tipperary border and South Kildare. And yeah, ending the cattle driving situation, restoring the rights of private property, 100%. As you know, because you've written about it, they set up 100 years ago this month, a special unit of the army, the Special Infantry Corps, to do just that. And as a matter of fact, during the, the last week, I was looking at some of the Special Infantry Corps files in the military archives. And yeah, they make very interesting reading. Uh, what you have with the Special Infantry Corps is you have the Royal Irish Constabulary without any, even a fig leaf the, uh, of the rule of law. It's, it's I mean, people the, not paid their land annuities. It's putching making. It's strikes. And yeah, it's the illegal occupation of land. They're doing stuff that the British government wouldn't have done. Probably because maybe what was going on in Clare or Waterford wasn't, didn't really ever bother the British government that much because it wasn't that important to them. But they're doing stuff like interning people and holding them as, as hostages until cattle driving in the area ceases. If they come out onto an area where stock is on land illegally because the owner or leaseholder of that land has had their cattle driven and the neighbours have put, have put their cattle on, what they're doing is impounding the cattle, putting it on a train and auctioning it off in Dublin or, or Galway or wherever, firing shots at people if they see them in, as they put it, illegal possession of land. And in the in the instances of the strikes, there's, as I say, there's bitterly fought farm labour strikes at this time, especially in Waterford, South Kildare and along the Kilkenny and Tipperary border. The farm workers movement was successful in 1919 and in the earlier period in general. Well, it was because there was a dem high demand for labour because of the compulsory tillage. And now this has changed as you go into a period where there's agricultural depression, yeah, and the prices are going downwards and there's less employment and the compulsory tillage is removed and the Agricultural Wages Board, which sets wage rates, has been removed. So there's that changing uh, changing context. But there's also, back in 1919, 1920, the farm workers movement was being able to be successful because of robust picketing and being able to shut down farmers' trade. Because the Special Infantry Corps come in in 1923 and effectively put strike-bound areas under military occupation and break up pickets, break up demonstrations, they're able to prevent farm workers from defending themselves and allow farmers to introduce savage wage cuts. They're fairly overt about what they're doing in their records. Like there's a, a report from Kilmana in Kilkenny. You know, they say, yeah, we arrived and we took down the red flag and like, that's basically what they were doing. They were there to take down the red flag. Yeah. On the other side of the Civil War divide, there is a concerted campaign of house burning. And some of the houses that are burned are the big houses, which have been the former seats of the landed gentry. 
And some people, notably Terence Dooley, have argued very strongly that this is about Landrunger. Do you agree with them? By and large, no. I think the, most of the big houses were burned down. And I think you've demonstrated this by looking at the chronology. Uh, they were burned down either because there was fear there would be a military function for them in that large houses like that can form useful temporary barracks or training grounds, as was used by the, the, the British Army during the Tan War period, like Strokestown House, for example, in, in County Roscommon, so a museum you can visit now. I, if I remember rightly, the graffiti from when the British Army or the Tans were occupying the place is still there. Or during the, the truce period, the IRA were using big houses like that for their training camps, as, for example, was the case in uh, Duckett's Grove in County Carlow. So these big houses had a military function. I mean, like that's not even just in this period. They were used as uh, as barracks during the emergency. And the same thing went on, the, on on the continent. Like the German army used chateaus for, for their staff during the Battle of Normandy. They were being burned but they because they could be used as barracks. And then they were being burned as part of the campaign against the free state in retaliation for the executions. But that said, I think some of them were burned in an agrarian context because once... The uh, IRA, particularly in Cork, in the earlier period, in the Tamworth period, introduced the burning of houses, the burning of the big houses as part of the repertoire. Other people copied it. It's likely the case there was a minority of, of instances where big houses were burned as part of like, local agrarian campaigns, yes. So, Terry, you know, we talked about the burning of the big houses, which is obviously a very evocative image or symbol of the period. But one thing that ties into that is a lot of the bigger farmers, not just landlords, were Protestants and some of them had been loyalists as well. And so my question is, there's a lot of discussion of sectarian or communal violence in the period. But how does that tie into agrarianism and, and land hunger, do you think? Well, in my opinion, it doesn't. I've looked at agrarian social conflict, including quite a degree of violence over a long period of Irish history. And I've come across one instance where a Bible saved someone's life, but I've never come across an incident where rosary beads did anything for anyone. So I don't think people would make a distinction in these matters between Protestant and Catholic. I think if you wanted to statistically analyze this, it's quite possible one could find a disproportionate amount of Protestants being targeted by agrarian protest. But Protestants were disproportionately among the holders of larger farms, although Catholics were a lot more strongly represented among landlords than people like to believe. The larger amount of land owned by landlords was owned by Protestant landlords. So, I mean, bearing that in mind, I don't think you can see this sectarian aspect. That's my gut take on it. I would be quite quite willing to hear a counter-argument on the 1921, 1922, 23 period. I am absolutely sure that as regards earlier historical periods when there was actually more sectarian conflict in the south of Ireland. My PhD was based on an analysis of 132 threatening letters, which were threatening letters were the usual way of issuing demands in 19th century Ireland, sort of clandestine way of, uh, of issuing demands. And these were threatening letters from situations of land conflict and situations of employment of rural labour. If I remember rightly, of that 132, there was only two that mentioned anyone's confessional allegiance. And at least one of them said, we don't care if this guy's a prize we're still not going to let them be evicted. We're not going to let this be done in uh, in, in our country, as, as people used to call their rural districts. And this is in pre-famine Ireland, and this is in a situation where you did have sectarian conflict in the south of Ireland. That's kind of where I'm coming from it, on it, and I don't see it in, in 21, 22, 23 so much either, though I can't state as categorically as I would state for the earlier period. There were specific instances where there was the inverted commas, the so-called planters, who were people that were brought in to take evicted land, land from which the tenants had been evicted from during the Planet Campaign. And the Planet Campaign was a series of red strikes across different estates in the, uh, what was it, late 1880s, 
early 1890s. So in two states in particular, the Lansdowne estate in Lugacairn in South East Leash and also on the Clan Rickard estate, Portumna in South East Galway, you would have had instances where people were expelling the inverted commas planters from their holdings in the early 1920s. So I don't see there's as straightforwardly a sectarian dimension to that. These people were being attacked because they had taken over farms from which other people had been evicted in the context of a, a rent strike. The landlords, as I understand it, specifically looked for incoming Protestant tenants. But the same thing would have happened and did happen to Roman Catholics also. Okay. Now, moving on. So, you know, the period ends in 1923 with the establishment of the Free State and the end of the Civil War. And one of the things that the Free State did, and they regarded it as essential for social stability, was a new land act. And they actually had to get a huge loan from the British government. So it wasn't necessarily an easy thing to do to buy out the remaining landlords. So can you talk about the Free State Land Act and how far it diffused and satisfied land hunger, if you like, in the 26 counties of the Free State? Well, it was very necessary to stabilise the new state. And just to go back to the Special Infantry Corps, and to, this is a, an example from the documentation I've been looking at recently as to how they didn't really regard coercion being able to solve the problem for them. Like There was this discussion in it's the, the Special Infantry Corps records, it's the aid to civil power records in the military archives, which covers some of the dunes of the Special Infantry Corps, about the owner of or leaseholder of some farmland up in the Burn in northwest Clare and him being threatened and having a dispute over this land. And the military officer is writing about the issue of whether a Special Infantry Corps post should be put up there on his farm to protect him, as would have been done by the Royal Irish Constabulary in years previous in the ranch war and the planning campaign and the, the land war where they had little galvanised posts out in rural districts on particular farms to protect the incoming tenants who had taken evicted land or to protect landlords or emergency men or whoever. And the military officer that's writing about this is like, he's had, the farmer in question has had no more threats than many other people have had in Clare. If we were to protect them all, we'd need 40,000 soldiers. And even if we put the military post up on his farm, which is remote and we could hardly access it, if someone wanted to shoot him, they'd be able to shoot him anyways. Now, what most likely to happen is his cattle will be driven, which shows the limits of what they were able to do with the Special Infantry Corps. So in order to win consent for the new state, they had to win over layers of people and, uh, and meet some of their demands, which is what they do with the 1923 Land Act. The 1923 Land Act is really where you see the end of the land of the state. Okay, it's the kind of really the final phase of tenant purchase, which as we were talking about earlier was the more of an issue in the Midlands and, uh, and North Leinster and along the border. And it's also where you start seeing more of a redistribution of farmland and they're taking over those untenanted lands and, and distributing them in smaller portions to surrounding small farmers and they're starting the process as well which again some of this had been going on under the estates commissioners and under the congested districts board but they're beefing up more of the process of migration which is where they're giving land in say east galway to people from west galway and ultimately moving people from the west over to leinster of the redistributed land in Meath and Kildare, 50 percent of it actually goes to people from the west does it satisfy the demands? Well, I mean, probably not, because in 1932, Fianna Fáil come into power and introduce a new Land Act. No, there's continuing discontent and, and continuing demands, but just not to the same extent as it was in the revolutionary period. Yeah. But it's a case of, uh, allude to an earlier period of Irish history, and that you'd know better, John. Was it the Duke of Ormond that said after the restoration in 1660, after the re restoration of the monarchy, that we're going to have to have a couple of other Irelands to uh, <laughs> to satisfy everyone's demands for land? Indeed, he and, did. I mean, the, the circumstances were quite different. He was talking about landowners, but yes, he did say that. Yeah, different, uh, different in that instance, certainly. But if you redistribute farmland, if you redistribute a finite public good into private ownership, 
there is going to be winners and losers, isn't there? Because it's finite, unless you give everyone equal amounts. And if you were giving everyone equal amounts, you would end up with very small farms indeed. So there were winners and losers as part of the process, certainly. And it's an interesting thing about it as well. And you see this if you look at the Dáil record, some of the statements from Labour Party TDs, is that these biggest states, as they're being broken up, there's a consequent loss of employment because, I mean, they would employ ground staff, farm workers, domestic servants, etc. And how are these people being recompensed? A lot of the time, far, uh, redistributed farmland was not going to farm workers, except in a brief period in the 1930s under the Fianna Fáil government. And even still, it wasn't necessarily appropriate to redistribute farmland to the previous all previous employees of an estate, because it's not just to give you a chunk of land. You have to stock and equip that farm. And if you're a farm worker, you likely do not have the financial resources with which to do that. The result of it, you're increasing the amount of small farms, essentially, but you're making small farms bigger, but you're increasing the amount of small farms. How economically viable are these small farms? The plan, both for the Department of Agriculture, which predates the state, so this was coming up from the British state, and in a lot of the rhetoric of Irish nationalism, was to diversify agricultural production. So they understood that small farms producing beef cattle on their own wouldn't, because it, there's low margins with that, wouldn't ultimately kind of solve the problem of rural poverty. So they wanted to diversify production and have more kind of like niche production, intensive market gardening, producing poultry and eggs to a better standard. They investigated things like apple production. One of the curious things about Ireland as a kind of pastoral country is that if you look at our our nearest neighbours that are similarly uh, pastoral, like the West Country in England or Brittany or Normandy or Asturias in northern Spain, they're all known for their cider production. So one of the things in this idea of diversifying agricultural production that the Department of Agriculture was looking into was was growing apples. Believe it or not, County Clare actually used to be well known for its cider. Arthur Young, the uh, 18th century agriculturalist, wrote about the great cider he got here. So they were looking at things like that. They were looking at like, um, it's a normal part of our diet now, baby potatoes. But they were looking at how you could you know, corner the British market for baby potatoes because it, it's a more kind of niche luxury product is what it was at the time, yeah? How, how we'd be able to develop Irish agriculture to be able to compete with Denmark and Holland in providing for the British breakfast table. But it didn't really work out like that. So, I mean, by the 1940s, by the 1950s, you start seeing people emigrate from Ireland again, as you have the boom and the post-World War II boom in the the rest of the West, and even people abandoning the new farms they had got from the Land Commission, you know? So, yeah, it it made a difference to people's lives, yeah, who received new farmland, no doubt about it. But it was perhaps only a stopgap for some decades. You know, if you read the publications of Irish separatists before the revolutionary period, like Irish Freedom, the IRB newspaper, they would talk about the things that you're talking about and they would say, Ireland should be a garden and we could support 10 million people easily and it's just because Britain has made a cattle ranch of it. That's the problem. And of course, like many revolutions, I suppose, people's hopes are kind of disappointed. There is a change, like you said, but it's not so much of a change because there is still a lot of poverty in the new free state, isn't there? Yeah. Well, there's actually famine conditions or near famine conditions in the west of Ireland in the mid-1920s. I can't remember which one it is, but a Cumannagel government minister famously says people may have to, to die in this country and die of starvation. They did their utmost to kind of cover it up or, well, that it wouldn't be seen internationally as a famine because this, of course, seemed like a, a great indictment of the new state. But that is the sort of conditions they were trying to address with the Land Commission. Now, obviously, talking about there, you're talking about a situation of absolute poverty, but I mean, poverty is also a relative concept. 
Kevin O'Shield, who was one of the main guys in the Dáil Courts and was later worked for the Land Commission, has a wonderful witness statement to the Bureau of Military History. It's almost like a book. And he talks about some of the things that he encountered in the 1920s. Now, this is post-free state when he's working for the Land Commission. And he talks about one episode on the Mullet Peninsula in northwest Mayo, where one of his colleagues takes him to see a buyer house. Now, a buyer house is kind of like a long, one-roomed cottage where the humans live at one end and the cattle live at the other end. The two of them go down to a long end of a lane to see this and the, the woman of the house rushes the animals out the door when she sees them coming because she's deeply ashamed that these are the conditions that she is living in. And then, of course, Kevin O'Sheal is deeply ashamed that he disturbed her in this way. But you see in his accounts very much that in some parts of Ireland, it's still the 19th century. You know, if you know what I mean, it's still like the middle of the 19th century. You have buyer houses. He also talks, and we didn't really get into it earlier, but when you're talking about this land redistribution, it's not just a case of people having small farms and other people having big farms. It's the small farms tend to be clustered on the poorest land in the most environmentally disadvantaged areas up the Rocky Mountains or in in, in bogs and so forth. He also talks about encountering clachons which is the kind of nucleated settlement, the little kind of villages, but villages with no services or little hamlets that, again, we associate with the famine period, yeah, and we haven't ended at the famine period, but he's finding them in the 1920s. But that said, poverty is a relative... I mean, okay, there's obsolete poverty, whereas, like, say, in, like, famine conditions, you're there on the side of the road, your mouth is green from eating weed, you're starving to death. But there's there's also like relative poverty, which is where you experience your conditions as poor because you're seeing that there's another way of living and how other people live. So in the 1920s, when Kevin O'Shea encounters that woman living in a buyer house, she's embarrassed for her poverty. But maybe 100 years previous, these strange gentlemen visitors might have been invited into the buyer house. And the woman might have been showing off at the other end of the room. She has these fine cows. So what had happened is people's conception of the standard of living and lifestyles that they could experience had changed. And I think part of the reason that that had changed was because of the amount of migration to the industrial metropolises of the United States in particular, but also to Britain. The standard of living you could experience in those societies was starting to set people's expectations in Ireland. That's among your small farmers in the west of Ireland. For your farm workers in the east, there's one thing I came across there where a parish priest was writing to the Irish Independent about a family in Louth. This was 1919, 1920. And because the cost of food was going up, inflation and people in fixed incomes were suffering as a result and because they didn't have that cottage garden where they were growing their own produce these people really didn't have enough food and the parish priest in his letter itemizes their diet and the, their cost as far as i can can make out from reading it sugar is what was getting them through in providing energy that they didn't have enough food to keep going so when we're talking about rural poverty in Ireland in this period and in earlier periods, I think there's a lot of focus on the small farmers in the west of Ireland. But it's important to remember that there was a, a landless agricultural proletariat in the east, particularly in the east. I mean, a smattering in the, in the west as well. They suffered real privatization at this time. And unlike the small farmers whose consent for the new state was won with a program of land redistribution. The agricultural proletariat faced mostly from the free state repression and in many ways were better off for independence when there was the Agricultural Wages Board that set minimum wage rates and there was much more public housing being rolled out by the British state. And many of them were just going to migrate in subsequent decades. Terry, that was very interesting for overview of the social history of the period in rural Ireland. Uh, briefly, Terry, to wrap up, what projects do you have on the go now? What I've got coming out at the moment is there'll be a new podcast series that I'm doing with Leash Libraries. It's looking at agrarian social conflict in County Leash during the Irish Revolution. 
there's going to be a short film trailer and maybe four podcasts on that topic. You'll find that on Leash Local Studies in the near future. I'm also bringing out an edited volume with John Cunningham of Galway University called The Spirit of Revolution, looking at the Irish Revolution from below. There's two chapters in particular in that one by Liam Alex Heffron and one by Johnny Burke that relate closely to what we've been talking about today. As well as that, make sure to check out my podcast, Peters and Sheep, which you'll find on all your podcast servers. At the moment with that, I've been looking at the Irish Revolution from below, looking at agrarian and rural labour protest. Yeah, okay. Well, Terry John, thank you very much for joining us. It was very interesting and Please follow us on The Irish Story and on The Irish History Show. So for me, John Dorney, that's all for now. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. So that was John Dorney with Dr. Terry Dunn. You can find Terry's podcast, Peelers and Cheap, on peelersandcheap.ie. So you can find all the previous episodes of our show on our website, irishhistoryshow.ie. And please follow us on Twitter, at irishhistorypod, or on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash the Irish History Show. If you get a chance, please rate and review the show on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help us, and if you hear an episode you like, please share it on your social media. We are really grateful for all the support we receive from you, the listeners. John has set up a Patreon for the Irish Story and the Irish History Show, and if you would consider supporting the show, there's a link in the show notes. Thank you, and we really do appreciate that. So until next time, on behalf of myself, Cahill Brennan, and my co-host, John Dorney, thank you very much for listening. Radio.ie hosts the Irish History Show podcast because history matters. Radio turns 100 years young this year. Radio's history is powered by Radio Archives. For radio archiving solutions from people passionate about radio, visit radio.ie.